Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Mobile technology, smartphones and related applications are as essential to modern society as air, food and water. Life today would be utterly unthinkable without mobile technology, phone, applications and commerce. As more and more users and businesses across nations employ smartphones as communication, commerce, healthcare and banking tool, it raises a serious concern about the security and privacy of personal and business information now stored on smartphones all across nations. Mobile smartphones and technologies are causing profound changes in the way we communicate, shop, track, direct, market, commerce, across nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, and also individuals, that is NGIOAI. As a result, mobile security and its vulnerabilities are rapidly becoming increasingly important in mobile computing. To discuss this further, I'm delighted to welcome Vijay Vishwanathan. He's a chief information security officer and very passionate about mobile security. He sits on many advisory boards. Welcome Vijay, we are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thanks, Thanks Shashri. Shashri. So Vijay, let's start with this. Uh, as a number of mobile users and threats grow at a rapid pace, any smartphone user today is exposed to various security and privacy risks when they use their phone. How can the industry assure its users that smartphones are secure? Yeah. So let me start off with a quick introduction here. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, this is Vijay Viswanathan. I'm the VP and Chief Information Security Officer for HD Supply. Uh, it's uh, it's an industrial supply chain organization. We are a wholesale distributor, and our primary focus kind of spans in facilities, maintenance, utilities, and few other areas. Uh, the the for the past couple of years, the cybersecurity market is going through quite a bit of transformation, not just from the uh, the the hacking and the the data destruction and the data theft perspective. But what we're necessarily seeing here is also an increase in shadow IT and in terms of how consumerization of different IT products is taking over. In other words, uh, as the cloud market increases and as users are more able to access broader enterprise type services from a cloud perspective directly from their mobile devices, you're gonna have quite a bit of these challenges that you laid out, Jayashree. One is we're going to see quite a few privacy challenges. Uh, the second is we are also going to take a look at different types of data access that's coming in directly. In other words, there is no more a boundary for your enterprise data uh, where it would sit in a very safe zone. Now, what happens right now is as your data is contained within a mobile device, your data has become boundaryless. In other words, the portability of data is, is a bigger factor and it's more lucrative. And if you look at the economy right now, the hacker economy, it's almost like a multi-billion dollar business. It's very well organized. If, if, if hacking is a Fortune 50 business, I'm pretty sure it's going to be listed in the top five right now. And I would put my money on it from a trade, from a stock market perspective. But where I'm going with this is the market is so well organized, there are subsects under it. So primarily you have the hacking economy that deals with the enterprise data model where you're focused on the servers and such. 
And then there's a secondary market that primarily targets the mobile devices or the mobile platform. So to kind of spread out a little bit further, you have the iOS ecosystem, and then you have the Android ecosystem, and the Microsoft and BlackBerry ecosystem does exist right now. But as these ecosystems gain adoption in multiple ways, so does the malware and the type of intrusion that can come through that. Now, there are quite a few products out there, quite a few startups that have been designed specifically to address the mobile data security issues and the privacy issues that we kind of laid out. At a very broad level, these could be broken down into mobile device management and mobile application management containers. The newer aspect of data security or data assurance comes from the uh, data privacy controls that products like AirWatch or a few others can offer. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the, the second aspect of this consideration would be how mobile devices are used by enterprise models. For example, uh, let's take the, the penetration of FreshBooks or Salesforce or one of these products, which is completely cloud-based and it's portable. It does increase the productivity for the workforce, right? Now, if you look at our associates within our organization, uh, you know, tablet users prefer that they can connect to the data directly over the cloud. Now, a couple of key points to remember, the way you operate or the fundamental way the architecture is done for IT kind of transforms from a legacy model into more of the digital transformation model that we're beginning to see in the market right now. So step one, to kind of break it down, when you architect or when you revise your architecture in the economy today, you wanna to be looking at mobile first thinking. And the second piece is data portability. In other words, the system architecture needs to understand data portability constraints and how can you actually encrypt data and transmit it from one end to the other end and how the other end interprets the data effectively, not at the cost of business operations. Now we are obviously doing all this to you know, increase productivity you know, decrease the wait time, the lag time, and overall bring a better user experience. Yes, yes. No, I, I think this is very good information, and uh, you are right on that. Now, when a smartphone is under an attack, is there a way for any user to know that it's under attack? Because a lot of times, I mean, people are not even aware that the phone that they are using is under attack, and they continue to act as normal. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, what's happening right now is the the mobile malware market, uh, the anti-malware market is what I should say. The mobile malware market has been there for almost a couple of years and it's kind of growing in its the modus operandi, the style, the different pieces, the style in which the malware comes through. Earlier, it used to be from infected application, primarily from the Android market. But now we are beginning to see the same thing come through from the iOS market for Apple devices as well. Now, there are a couple of key signs that you can immediately pick up if your data is being uh, uh, you know, stolen or if there is some problem with the malware, you're gonna see some telltale signs. You're gonna see some performance issues. You're gonna see very specific screen errors. You're gonna see, are the most important one that I have noticed and, and it's repeated often, is the major battery drain. 
the phone actually starts dying down very quickly. The tablet starts dying down quickly. Let's just say if you are working with your device for two full days, assuming that your device is infected, it could deplete rather quickly. So that's one consideration. Uh, the second consideration is, you know, just this, this is a sort of example that I use with my internal associates and my business partners and leaders as well. You know, every month we get our credit card statement, we go through that on a very methodical basis just to be self-assured. I would encourage a similar approach to your data exchange as well. You know, take a look at your uh, cell phone records on a regular basis, understand where the data is going. Did you text that particular number or did you receive a number that you don't recognize? A simple housekeeping is some of the good ways to quickly detect before the problem gets too severe. Right, right. No, I, I, I think those are good points. But my question is that aren't the mobile, isn't the mobile network en encrypted? When we make a voice call or when we send data, is right. there encryption not happening? So why is there so much, you know, uh, why are we facing so many challenges with malwares and, you know, security challenges? Great question. Now, voice calls by design are not encrypted. Now, it purely depends upon the type of technology and the service provider. Uh, for example, the GSM services could be a very different perspective from the CDMA services that we have in, in, in the United States. Uh, there are uh, plenty of applications, and this has been a pretty hot topic in the news media right now, especially with terrorist organization using uh, encryption tools to actually exchange information. Those type of applications are available in plenty by the dozens in, in all the popular mobile markets. And those are some of the precautions one could actually leverage. For example, there are applications like Signal that allows you to do voice calls that are encrypted. You could also encrypt your text messages in an effective manner and of course, your enterprise data is containerized based on the type of MDM solution you use. Now, uh, this is a little bit of a controversial topic when you look at it from, uh, you know, the federal government actually eavesdropping on your calls versus uh, our end users actually leveraging something similar. Are the malicious actors, bad actors, are they doing the same type of intrusion that uh, you know the 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 eavesdropping case is going up, right? So there's quite a bit of probabilities versus what's reality in the market right now. So the thought process is based on the type of data that you actually exchange. Let's kind of break it down: the personal data and then the enterprise data. Uh, you could most definitely use your mobile device management solution for your data protection, and you could look at, as I gave an example. Uh, applications like Signal for encrypting your voice communication as well. I see, I see. No, I, I think it's a good information on there. Now, it seems, Vijay, that security challenges are also based on the flaws in the operating system or applications on the phone. It is said that the mobile web browser is an emerging attack vehicle for mobile devices. Mm -hmm. What are your observations? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, when you typically look at a, a risk management model rather than just a security model, you're constantly seeking attack surface, right? 
So the new mobile interface are applications that are developed with poor security hygiene becomes a very uh, easy target to exploit. You know, it, it's the same old story that we saw on the desktop now being played out in the mobile world. That's the simplest uh, classification and comparison we can come down to. So a couple of years ago, I would say, let's just dial back 10 years ago, we were in the thick and thin of vulnerability and patch management, which is still a very important aspect of uh, any security organization. The same thing needs to convert itself into the mobile device space as well. In other words, applications that are being developed in-house needs to go through the same level of uh, assessment, security assessment and scrutiny that you would do for your desktop applications to ensure that there's proper hygiene. Yeah, most malware um, vectors, you know, the easiest malware vector, I should say, uh, are coming through adware. So mobile devices, the mobile real estate on the screen is so precious, ads are well-designed when you go to a particular web page. Now, if the ad source itself is infected, then the page you're going to get along with the ad that's being published to you is an infected page. In other words, uh, it's a mass propagation happening without any limitation. We have seen quite a few examples with Yahoo. We had examples with Google as well a while ago. So when the core ad management server is itself serving content to you that's infected, there isn't much you can do about it. Right, I know that is a that is really a very serious, you know, concern right there. But uh, like you said, you know, there are uh, many things we still have to figure out how to go forward. But there are, uh, Vijay, there are reports that some mobile applications that consumers think that this is a genuine application and they, they, then they download that, that itself could be malware. There are some reports out of that. So how can consumers be made aware of such mm -hmm. applications, nature, functionality, and activities so that mm -hmm. its use can be limited? Because these applications, when they put that in uh, iTunes store or you know, other application stores, people from all over the world, they're downloading that. Now, even right. people here, security professionals here, they find out that mm -hmm. this is actually a malware. How quickly and rapidly that information can be, you know, the, communicated to all over the world, all across nations, so that further, you know, damage cannot be done. You know, it's a great point that you bring up, Jashree. Uh, if you think about what's happening with the the modern, let's say, the agile economy, the speed and agility are two important aspects of how we operate. So the point you just explained, when fake applications are downloaded, it spreads rather quickly. It's a pretty fundamental problem. Now, the biggest answer for that, or how do we even tackle a problem like this, is informed user. In other words, awareness is absolutely the key. Um, most of us recognize the spam messages on the desktop that comes from you know, Nigeria telling us that we won a lottery ticket in Nigeria, and we're supposed to send them couple of thousand dollars and then you get a big bank check, right? Now, everyone laughs about it. There's a good understanding of that spam. And the reason for that is it's awareness. A lot of people already understand what's going on. But the mobile market is a, a nascent market. There are games that are available for free, especially in the Android market, 
that is if you if you look at the latest Android 5.0 and upwards, the moment you install the application, Android is going to tell you this application is looking for these different permissions on your phone. Now, as an informed user, you should ask yourself, why does a game require all these permissions on my phone? And if you ask the question, and then you realize that it's it's challenging your personal data or it's accessing your personal data, you would make a very knowledgeable conclusion that that game is not something you want to use. Mm -hmm. Now, on, on the second hand, what I have also seen is there's a lot of, uh, most users tend to read the ratings of different applications in the App Store, and they kind of take it without a grain of salt. My big recommendation is a lot of those recommendations and reviews that's been written for the apps are actually generated. They're not very legit. So you really need to understand the difference between what is a legitimate review versus something that's being mass generated by some bot out there that is trying to increase the value of the fake product. A uh, couple of quick things to keep in mind. Always be sensitive to the type of permissions that the application is requesting. And if something looks too good to be true, for example, you're getting an office package that has Word, Excel, PowerPoint, everything put together for free, question yourself, why would Microsoft be doing this? And is this the application that I'm really trying to download? Yes. So some, some basic common sense approach uh, is essential. And similar to you know the national do not call registry, uh, there are certain uh, application groups out there, like the OWASP group and few others, where you can report these fake applications. Most importantly, get familiarized with the App Store reporting the junk application or spam application policy. That really helps out pretty well. Yes, good points, Vijay. Now, it seems that the prime targets for mobile smartphone attackers are data, identity, and availability. You were, when we were just started talking in the session, you mentioned that, you know, everyone should look at their bills and that would give them an idea about, you know, if there are some unnecessary data charges or unnecessary, you know, phone charges. But when the hackers or criminals are after your identity, and data, how would you know? Data still they can figure out if they down, you know, somebody is downloading or you know, there there is too much transfer of data. Probably there is a way to find out. But right. even after your identity information, there is no way to know that. So yes, how would how how would you know users know that? And second point is that why are cyber criminals? After data identity and availability on smartphones, what are they trying to achieve by that? Yeah, great point. Uh, so a while ago, I, I believe it was Forbes that had a, a very interesting article that spoke about why your smartphone is more valuable than your wallet. Yes. Yeah. So your wallet may contain plastic. It's, that's the whole traditional style of doing it. But your mobile device has become a personal extension of your life, your online presence, your, your pretty much your ecosystem of survival, calling in for a quick takeout or calling in or checking your bank details, responding to your work email, uh, responding to your family, exchanging pictures. These are nothing but your essential functions of being in the society 
that's all tied very closely to your mobile device. Now, let's kind of take that perspective for a second. And I'm a hacker, and I want to understand, all right, if I need to basically go ahead and you know, steal someone's identity, I need certain pieces of information. I need to know something more about this user. What do you think is the easiest place to get more information? The mobile device or any one of the technology devices in the network of the user. So once I gain access to that, I'm able to understand the user's you know, password pattern, for example, the user habits, behavioral aspects of the user. Now, social security number isn't just identity. It's just one aspect or one parameter of your identity. Um, there, you need a couple of more items to realistically create uh, a lot more damage. And you can go ahead and get identity protection. You can get your identity monitoring in place, which seems to become the industry's normal go-to whenever there is a data breach. But I really don't see the value in it. But kind of connecting the dots back to your question here, Jayashree, uh, the thought process is identity has multiple facets and attributes. By gaining access to the mobile device or personal device, the more information I know about you, I can actually create a persona, a profile of you, and that's more valuable in the underground market rather than the name social security number. Right, right. No, I agree with you. It's a good analysis. Now, it is said that some attacks derive from flaws in the management of SMS and MMS. Some mobile phone models have problems in managing binary SMS messages. What can you tell to our global viewers and listeners about the phone models that are vulnerable to such security threats? It's, once again, a very, very good point. Now, the GSM technology or the fundamental SMS technology and the phone call technology was kind of derived, I would say, in an era when iPads and iPhones and Android devices weren't even conceived. I mean, we all remember the Nokias of the world when it was a simple, clean phone and the one, only job was to call, place the call, and receive a message. So the fundamental protocol tech stack issues still needs to be addressed. And this is something I, I believe there's quite a bit of work being addressed in this area with the reference framework being redeveloped. And what's going to happen is Let's assume that if you compare that to the, the OSI layers in our TCP IP stack, uh, you could still work with those limitations using layer seven, in other words, with secured applications. As I kind of pointed out earlier for another reference, uh, we do have SMS messages, but you could always use a secured web messaging service like Signal or Telegram or any one of those applications that offsets the vulnerability of legacy technology. But to your point, the core reference framework for the protocol definitely could use some you know, improvements. But let's also be realistic about it. Um, if you look at the consumption and utilization of GSM technologies and cellular technologies, the, the, the core infrastructure needs to be modernized in quite a few ways. And that could be a bigger undertaking and the low-hanging fruit here is approach the problem from an application perspective. I, I believe that's what's happening in the market right now. Right, right. No good information, Vijay. There now, the security of wireless networks. 
Mm-hmm. Very important subject when it comes to use of mobile phones and, and mobile equipments like iPad and other equipment. Now it seems that there is an equipment available that can eavesdrop on Wi-Fi. Right. This, this is a very serious concern. Are the secure? Are the wireless networks secure? You know, uh, this is an area which is perennially debated. One of the the most common. Um, learning procedures for any security professional is to start with the wireless networks. The wireless networks, fundamentally, they have had challenges in how security has been considered. You know, it's, it uses the same SSID model. It uses the, you know, a one-password approach. Of course, there's modern approaches to solving this problem, like FIDO Alliance is coming up with some interesting ways to solve the problem. But let's talk about the device that you're talking here. Now, the the string rays or uh, stingrays, excuse me, the products that can be used to eavesdrop on your Wi-Fi has been available in the market for quite a while. Now, it is a fact that you do need to protect your both your home network, your you know your enterprise network on a, a very stringent basis and keep up with the evolving technologies or Wi-Fi updates. I'll give you a case in point here. If you look at Windows 10, there's something called as Wi-Fi Sense. So the concept is Microsoft Windows 10 kind of understands the regular places where you are and creates a memory pool of all the Wi-Fi addresses. Now, there is also an extension of it. Let's say uh, if you're friends in Facebook with someone and that some particular person comes over to your house, uh, because of the fact that they are friends in Facebook with you, they, are, they can be authorized using Facebook account into your Wi-Fi. Now, for the knowledgeable user, goes back to being an informed user and security awareness is a key player here, this can be very beneficial. It's ease of administration. You can authorize a user at home with considerable security protection. But for the Let's just say for the technically challenged user, the let's say I call my mom and she's having the same conversation with me, she's probably going to let someone in without her knowledge. So the positives of the technology have different use cases. Those use cases is what we need to be more sensitive about. And kind of tying it back to the technology discussion of it, just like how you have uh, you know stingrays that you know, do some wireless eavesdropping and data extraction. We see that that's also available in your wired network. So I'm not surprised by the availability and the portability of the technology. It's the question of how do you address the problem with the right type of toolkit with constant hygiene practices. For example, we do Wi-Fi scanning. We use air magnet and a few other things to understand if there is open vulnerability. So it's the same, same fundamentals. Patch, understand the vulnerabilities, make sure that you're well integrated into what's happening in the market. And number three, always have a clear plan and you stick to the plan when it comes to managing your security of these devices. Yes, no, very true, Vijay. Now, it also seems that the Bluetooth devices on different phones have security issues. How common are these security challenges and how can they be fixed? Yeah, so with the with the advent of multiple mobile device manufacturers, 
Now you're able to get mobile devices for you know under twenty dollars or fifty dollars from you can import it directly from China from sites like Gearbest, so on and so forth. Now there are different versions of Bluetooth, starting from 1.0 all the way to 5.0, and there is some A2DP connection methodology. There's different options in Bluetooth. The challenge is lack of standardization by different vendors in adopting the most secured Bluetooth. Obviously, what's secured today will be negated by next year when certain vulnerabilities are detected and there's gonna be a better secured version of Bluetooth. So very simply put, it's staying on top of the game and if the manufacturers all agree and stick to a particular version of Bluetooth, that would be step one in figuring out how to solve the problem. Step two, I'm gonna go back to my informed and knowledgeable user. Do not purchase a phone just because it's inexpensive if the Bluetooth is not up to spec, as an example. So if you're looking at devices, understand what's the basic security requirements you need to have. And trust me, everyone has security requirements. There is no answer where people say, well, there's no data in my phone. I don't need security. Well, everyone requires security. It's part of the core DNA that we need to adapt to. So my thought process would be a Bluetooth from a vendor perspective. Second is the, uh, the the penetration of cheaper devices from the Chinese market. I've seen a lot of Chinese manufacturers create clones that look exactly like iPhones or Android devices that are very vulnerable. Uh, know what you're getting, ensure that you're always up to date. Same fundamental steps that we followed back in the enterprise model uh, for safeguarding your network and how do you patch them. Right, right. No, I, I agree. That's good information. Now, uh, there are reports that smartphones, just like the laptops or computers, they are also vulnerable and susceptible to the same kind of security threats. Like, you know, computers that like phishing, malicious websites, and all kinds of, you know, challenges that we face on the computer. So how is the industry attempting to secure the smartphones. Is there any antivirus software or are there any security uh, softwares available for the smartphones? Yeah, so for, you know, the, the way I would kind of connect the dots here is as technology evolves, at some point our tech life cycle used to be 18 months and now the prediction is we are probably in 12 months to 14 month cycle and that's gonna keep shrinking. What I mean by that is, your device, your smartphone is nothing but a different form factor of your desktop computer. You have phones today that have faster processors and higher memory capability than some of the laptops that are out in the market. If you look at some of the latest Windows devices that are coming out, you could actually use the mobile device as your primary computer and you can project it in a big screen and operate out of it. Long story short, the point here is, irrespective of the footprint of the device, irrespective of the platform, the size, the operating system of the device, data is scalable and portable between all these footprints. So be it a big screen or a small screen, your sensitive data is still sensitive data. Now, to answer your thought process on what's happening with antivirus program, 
the mobile market by design is driven towards UX or user experience. So the way devices are architected and software is written in these uh, mobile devices, you want speed and agility. And fundamentally, if you were to take a product from the desktop, like an endpoint security solution and drop it here, you're not gonna get the same performance. You're gonna see some very dramatic performance impact. But there are some newer products out there uh, that are very targeted towards mobile device endpoint solutions that are doing a pretty decent job. For example, there's quite a few freeware options available from ABG and the Cheetah Mobile and a few others that can actually be installed on your Android device. And, and the Android device is able to, and, and based on my testing, what I have noticed is about 70 to 80% of the most common issues can be detected with these particular uh, anti-malware, anti-virus solutions. I, I agree with you on that. Now, is it possible for cyber criminals to modify the operating system of the smartphones? Um, it's a it's a good question. It's possible in certain ways. Now, there have been some widespread reports um, on the fact that you could run a parallel program or an infected program uh, in terms of the behavior and habit. Now, I would compare that. APT, Advanced Persistent Threat, more than actually rewriting the core firmware or operating system of the program, or the, excuse me, of the mobile system. Now, an interesting area to touch here is um, basically unlocking your device, jailbreaking your device, rooting your device. If your device is rooted, if it's an Android device and you root the device, you acknowledge that you're actually opening up your core kernel, in other words, you're opening up the device and you are consciously adjusting the security parameters of the device. Uh, unless you know what you're doing in terms of rooting the device, my recommendation for the normal mobile user is to stay away from rooting, jailbreaking, or any one of these approaches. It's very similar to if you install a program on your desktop uh, from an unauthorized website or you don't know what it is, but you install a program and you're wondering why is my computer slow, it's a very same concept. Do not install something in your device that is not authorized or you know for sure it's not safe. Um, so to answer your question, if somebody can jailbreak or root a device, you could pretty well go ahead and modify the operating system performance, you could modify how the you know the look of the devices you can modify how the like, certain parameters are called from memory all those could be tweaked pretty easily when you gain access to the core right right so how do we build security for these operating systems i mean for our laptops and computers there are you know tools available but are there tools available for securing the operating system of the smartphones it's an evolving market right now. Now, there aren't that many big players uh, who are consciously working on it. And as I pointed out, it, it goes back to the, as long as you could break a device, jailbreak a device, or root a device, uh, the, the, the threat of altering the operating system is very prevalent. Now, Samsung, for example, has done some uh, very unique approaches to, if you tamper 
with the core kernel, if you tamper with the boot of the system, the boot, uh, boot space of the system, uh, then you basically render the device warranty wanted, right? Now, there are other manufacturers like Sony and few others who have come up with some uh, unique approaches where if you root the device, the camera functionality drops pretty dramatically. You don't get the best quality pictures. So the device manufacturers have taken you know, reasonably adequate steps. And I think they should continue to follow this path uh, in order to ensure that um, as much as you want to entertain open source community for device optimization, newer technology build, the average user shouldn't be burdened with the thought process of, do I need to be securing my operating system? That shouldn't be the focus point for an average user. I see, I see. No good information. Now, there are reports that there is a capability to trigger the voice interface of certain smartphones remotely by mm -hmm. specific electromagnetic waveforms by taking advantage of antenna properties of headphone wires by mm -hmm. talking to the audio output jackpots, uh, jacks of the vulnerable smartphones and effectively spoofed audio input to inject commands via the audio interface. Can you explain our viewers and listeners if there is anything that can be done to protect users from such interference? Uh, the short answer is quite unlikely. There isn't a prescription solution out there that will prevent you from such a sophisticated targeted attack. Now, the fundamentals of anything digital that's got lights on it and that's got voice in it, it's pretty fundamental. It's electronic, it's electromagnetic waves. So we're kind of dialing back back into the basics of physics and communication, electronics communication, right? So the these type of very targeted, modernized attacks, I would almost go to the point of saying they're weaponized attack systems, because these are the things that you see uh, with the army where they're specifically focused on very advanced warfare. Now, Yes, it's possible. Yes, it has been demonstrated. And I'll give you an example. Um, I'm a diabetic, and I use uh, uh, what, is, what do you call as an insulin pump for constant monitoring, and I, the insulin is constantly injected into the system. Now, I'm not going to go into the brand names and what it is, but I was able to actually intercept the remote signals of my own insulin pump using a device which, by the way, shouldn't be possible because there's a wireless remote. When you test your blood, the remote wirelessly sends the signals back into my insulin pump, and then the insulin gets discharged and pushed into my body, right? But I was able to detect the frequency between both of them, and I could literally, if I was a hacker, I could inject as much insulin as I want in my body. It's that simple. It's that simple to figure out how do you actually intercept electromagnetic waves or radio waves, and you 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 basically intercept it, and you can do quite a bit of damage with that. Now, I just gave the example of a medical device because that kind of hits me hits home with me much more strongly. Eavesdropping on a telephone call, yes, absolutely makes sense. You could initiate voice commands. You could alter what's called as uh, the uh, the, the hypersonics, I may be using the wrong word there, but it's it's a technology that involves voice modulation 
that actually converts digital signals to operate at a particular frequency and that frequency is matched to the user's voice frequency and you could give commands say for example to siri or something else and you know take control of the device it has been done it's easy to do but i'm more concerned from medical devices at this point i would consider a medical device like a pump or uh, an artificial liberated uh, an artificial device or an artificial uh, let's say the, the the heart pump for example those would be much more dangerous and the priority for addressing mobile security on them i think is more critical yes yes no these are truly very critical risk and uh, uh, we need to figure out a way so that we can uh, effectively prevent the, these intruders uh, into hacking into any medical devices especially like you were saying so i hope that you know there is some good progress in this area for the security perspective of all these you know uh, health tools that uh, millions of people are using exactly Now, Right. Uh, now, there are reports that many devices have been susceptible to data X uh, filtration or malware installed by simply utilizing malicious charging kiosk set up in yeah. public places, airports and, you know, all different, you know, public places that you see. We would just, you know, think, okay, our battery is running out. Let's go and charge it. Right. And, uh, people are probably not even aware that you know they are getting malware just by you know charging their phones or equipment exactly so let's let's call this i think the term i would use for this is crowdsourced infection right yes. so the the thought process would be um let, let's go back to the latest media news juniper was under scrutiny because one of their core product had such a you know, vulnerability in their core firmware, uh, they were taken into test. Not too long ago, there are some Chinese manufacturers where their core device itself carried, the firmware itself carried some very serious malware in it. Uh, what it means is this, it's supply chain security, right? It's somebody authorized, let's just say I'm company let me call let me call myself mobile charge station let me that's the company name let's go with that i'm commissioning somebody in a, a country like china to say manufacture with this specification these type of devices and you mass importing right the problem is there's something called supply chain security where every phase of information exchange design exchange and what's happening when a particular product is manufactured, you need to assess each and every aspect of it. So those kiosks that probably are, you know, infecting malware probably did not have a very clear supply chain security process. You know, not to beat the old dead horse, if you look at Target uh, exploit, what happened in the Target breach, it, you know, it was exploited through an HVAC account. If there was supply chain security and how that particular person was authorized, if there was accounts managed over that particular user's user behavior, there could have been some interpretation. So the same thought process could be applied to all these devices that are being imported without adequate supply chain security evaluation. That's number one. Number two, uh, yes, it's again, I'm gonna go back to my informed user. The fact that you and I are talking about it we are definitely not going to go and plug our phones into a kiosk 
probably in an airport because we just spoke about it and we are aware and we are conscious about that. So that's the piece that I really try to focus on. Let's educate the users and the community by saying you need to be aware of this. And this is where I think I need to give you a big uh, you know, shout out and credits, Jayashree. These podcasts, I think, brings that value by you know spreading the message more and more in terms of how exactly you know these things are happening i'm not going too much into the details but at the basic level you clearly understand that you need to be aware of that so to me second point would be user awareness um, and then the third point would obviously be you know why would i need to plug my device into any available kiosk now i know i'm going to get quite a bit of flack and responses on this hey i'm running out of juice so i need to go ahead and plug it my thought process would be plan your day make sure that you have something available in the worst case scenario make sure that the the power port that you're plugging in is a legitimate source yes yes no very true very true now how many kinds of malwares are out there that are targeted towards just smartphones any um you know i could make a a, a valuable guess educated prediction here but this this the, the old traditional model of naming viruses and patterns are kind of, uh, I would say, a slightly stale. Right now, it's behavior-based attack and behavior-based detection. While there could be quite a few variation of the same malware based on user behavior, for example, if I use Skype on a regular basis, I could be targeted by the same malware by the exploits available in Skype versus, let's say, you use Google on a regular basis, the same malware could attack you, but it'll exploit the features of Google's vulnerability. So right. it's, it's it's a pretty hard number, but yes, there's, you can always go into one of those websites and figure out here is a bigger number for the different types of malware available. Then got it, got it. Now I'm ready to you know, explain that. Now, if a cyber criminal unauthorized individual accesses an individual's phone and start making calls because they are also if they start making calls how would anyone unauthorized calls are made from their phone while they are being made is there any way to i mean after the calls are made of course when you get the bill you find out but while the calls are being made is there any way to know that your phone is being used um it, it all depends upon the type of attack. Now, let's assume that I'm, I'm going to go with the GSM technology, meaning the phones with the SIM card in it. Uh, there's something called as a SIM duplicator. Um, you could replicate a SIM and use the same SIM card in two different phones at the same time. You could spoof calls. Basically, in other words, you're uh, mirroring a phone's identity on a different phone and using it. Uh, obviously, the SIM technologies has come a long way. The nano SIMs are capable of much better technology and security. The identity number or ident number within the SIM card, which is which is critical to identifying your unique attribute in the cell network, if that gets compromised, then you can obviously make calls. Now, that's the fundamental traditional way of looking at it. Now, there are other ways of approaching. Uh, as to what you said, the, the, the problem statement here, let's say I have Skype installed, or let's not use brand names, but let's just say I have a video service installed on my phone. 
and that video service actually has a vulnerability. Now, I as a user, let's just say I'm a hacker, I realize that you are available on that particular video service. Now, I don't have your SIM card information, I don't have any such data, but I do know that mobile application for that video app is vulnerable. So I'm gonna find a way to get into your device using that particular vulnerability and then make calls leveraging your Vivo IP or wipe capability. That's still a theft. That's basically still you know, uh, a hack, but it's coming through a different avenue. To answer your question, would you know if a call is being made? Uh, 90 times out of 100, it's unlikely that you would know a call is being made. These type of attacks are not that popular. They are uh, very targeted. They can happen in specific countries. I've, you know, the, if you look at the zones from where these type of attacks come from, they are very prevalent in Asia right now. They are also very prevalent in African countries at the moment. We haven't seen that many of them in the, uh, the United States or Canada or any one of the European markets. I see. I see. No, that's good information. And I'm I hope that someone develops that kind of tool or technology that would help us know that, you know, somebody is trying to use our phone so we can quickly, you know, take some action towards it. So yes. some innovation is required in this. But anyway, with the rise in artificial intelligence, it is not only criminal minded humans that can cause damage, even computer programs that could create havoc. So how to distinguish between a human and a non-human attack on our smartphones? It is a very, very, very difficult uh, situation. Now, I would first ask myself, where is the attack coming from? I mean, do I even need to know if my device is attacked? And why do I need to know if it's a human attack or an, you know, an attack from a bot or an attack from artificial intelligence? End of the day, uh, the way I would approach this is, a, my device is under attack. Number two, let's assume that my device has sensitive data and I'm really concerned about the sensitive data being exploited. Then I become interested in that question, where did the attack come from? So you're basically going into the forensics of the breach. It's a whole other perspective. Now, is it possible for us to say what's happening? Yes, we could look at the patterns of the attack based on certain characteristics. Say for example, um, you could easily differentiate between a denial of a service attack and a very targeted password compromise, right? A denial of service attack needs to be scripted, automated, and you're going to see a barrage of traffic coming through to that particular target. But if you are looking at a very specific, quiet password compromise, we know that in the log files, you're only going to see one situation but that relates to password. So that's how you differentiate between, in a traditional sense, how attacks happen from an automated system or AI or, or from a human being. The same could be translated down into mobile devices. And there are some very active big data security models that can be built to distinguish between the different patterns of mobile security issues. Just the way we have CVEs, which is the vulnerability list that we have, the common vulnerability language. I think there needs to be a mobile vulnerability language as well. I'm pretty sure there's something exists already, but it isn't very popular. But the, the, the thought process of 
creating that valuable repository of different attack patterns will go a long way in detecting if it's a, a human attack or is a digitized attack. I see. No, that, uh, that's uh, good information. Now, uh, people say that, you know, biometric identification is going to, you know, be coming to us, you know, for smartphones pretty soon. So how close are we to using biometric identification? Well, we are using already. I mean, if you, if you think about it, uh, all of our devices, iPhone 6, 6S, and all these devices already have biometrics in them. Uh, the, the, what I'm actually getting excited is Microsoft is using iris scanner. You're, you just look at the device and it detects your security with your, with your eyeballs. But basically, the technology is already there. The, the way it's been implemented initially, Apple was under quite a bit of, uh, you know, there were some very good technical papers around their implementation model. And then Apple introduced their TPM, which is tamper uh, protection module within the device. So the encryption is basically on the hardware layer rather than the software layer. So there is some, you know, quicker mass market implementation of biometrics. You're going to see a lot more of this. And the bigger concern is how do you, you know, are you seeing a lot more hacks of biometrics? Most definitely. There are some very interesting methodologies where you could simply bypass your biometric screen on your, you know, mobile devices. There are some very well-tested methodologies that could use as, as simple stuff as your paper tape and, you know, a little bit of talcum powder and you can really work your magic and try to see if you could take the fingerprint off and reproduce it. And there are some very professionally developed kits that you can procure to bypass or, or imitate biometrics. Now, what's going to happen next is as biometrics starts penetrating in the market, I'm more concerned about the widespread distributed databases of biometric information. Now, password is something I thought about, and it's in the database somewhere. But if you come and actually steal my thumbprint, I just can't come up with a new password. I mean, I mean, I can't just replace my thumb, right? So I think we really need to consider this a little bit more carefully as we move into making this a mainstream adoption for every practical use. Uh, I gave the same example at a particular um, a keynote session that I did. Uh, why can't we all go to biometrics? I think we should. I think there's a lot of progressive thinking that's already been done. But bear in mind, you forget your password, I can reset the password. Somebody steals my identity or iris, I can't go change or get a new pair of eyes or get a new thumb. <laughs> that is true. That's a very, very valid concern. I hear you on that. Now, when we see, I mean, irrespective of uh, laptop computer or desktop computer or, uh, you know, smartphones, we are, you know, constantly uh, hit by a lot of spam, e spam emails. Now, for the laptops and computers, we do have spam filters available. But for <laughs> smartphones, I'm not sure if it is available because unless you have on your host server some antivirus or, you know, anti-spam filters, then you are bombarded with a lot of, you know, emails that are just spam and how to protect yourself from on the smartphones. It, I'm not sure if there are any spam filters available. Are there? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, when you look at spam and when you look at scenarios that can, that are related to messaging, a lot of it has to be done at the server side. And you you basically have multi-layered defense model. This is where the multi-layered defense approach kind of kicks in. Um, obviously, the service provider utilizes some form of spam control. So a majority of spam that we are seeing in our inboxes is coming in after someone already did some filtering on them. So spammers kind of get very creative and it takes a little bit of time to catch up with this, you know, anti-spam tools to detect the newer type of, uh, you know, spam modification that's happening or morphing that's happening. It takes a while. Now let's kind of break this problem down into a couple of scenarios. If you're talking about enterprise data, the enterprise solution that you have for your anti-malware, anti-spam, will automatically apply to your mobile device because you're definitely just accessing your email using a different platform, but the filtering and the whole nine yards is done on the server side. Now let's talk about uh, publicly available free email services, the likes of Outlook, Gmail, iCloud, et cetera, et cetera. You obviously need to consider, you know, these are, they're doing a pretty decent job. If you look at the spam filter availability from all these major service providers, they're pretty decent. What is the, the fact that you need to remember is a lot of spam is generated based on our behavior as well. So if you go ahead and publicly release your IP address in multiple forums and you sign up for multiple coupons, for example, uh, you, your address becomes a commodity. It just becomes available in every spammer's list and you're gonna start getting quite a bit of that. So once again, user education, if it's enterprise, you're, you, obviously your enterprise is doing something about it. And the last piece I wanna say is, uh, by default, the applications in your mobile devices offer the capability to you know, identify a message as a spam. It's just an extension of the same application you have on the desktop. Continue the same hygiene and the same practices, and I think that should just work well for mobile devices. No, good advice. I think that's a very good advice. Now, you know that, I mean, everyone is using smartphones. Uh, they you go to Amazon, they do shopping, they do some banking, you know, we bank their uh, banking with. Uh, is there a secure channel available to transmit encrypted data and information? Because those, I, I'm sure that when you try to do shopping on Amazon, it, the encrypted data must be, you know, uh, getting uh, trans transmitted. So, is there a secure channel available on that? Uh, right. This is where the the basics of um, security technology comes in, right? So, when you look at SSL certificates or HTTPS protocol, Amazon obviously, you know, they have done their job in terms of ensuring anytime you shop at their website, it's HTTPS and it's secure. Now, you know, the SSL certificate is an old story. People get it. We Everybody does it. Even though it's an old story, there are some very fundamental vulnerabilities that still exist with the SSL technology. We have seen that quite a, quite a few of them in the past couple of years. So first suggestion is ensure that the certificates are upgraded. The strength, certificate strength needs to be upgraded to a bare minimum of 1024. Uh, Google Chrome, for example, if you look at it, it will start indicating to you the site that you went, even if it is HTTPS, it will tell you that the site is not secure, it's not 
you know, it's not recognized or the certificate is not recognized. Now, Google Chrome is actively engaging in informing the user the strength of the certificate and older legacy certificates are being deprecated away. So watch it for the certificate, watch it for the browsers. The modern browsers are very well designed to tell you if the address URL, uh, if it shows you green and shows no error, you're in a pretty safe zone. I mean, there is only so much you can do about that. Uh, there are some other considerations also that you could think about. Uh, these are called VPN. Obviously, everyone's familiar with a VPN or the virtual private network for enterprise perspective. You know, you, you, you dial into your work. But you can also get your own personal VPN. And that's a secure channel to access different websites. So in other words, the ISP service that you're getting at your home, you could put up a secure channel on top of that service and access all the shopping sites in further protection. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Now, mobile phone manufacturers have the basic responsibility of ensuring that the mobile devices that they manufacture are delivered with a basic configuration without vulnerabilities. Are the mobile phone manufacturers accountable for the security vulnerabilities? Who is monitoring it's, the manufacturers? Correct. It's the same question you have, you know, we all have asked various software manufacturers, you know, years together. Microsoft has this Patch Tuesday, right? The very design of Patch Tuesday is Every month, the vulnerabilities that are detected get patched. Uh, it's kind of a very, uh, I, I would call it a very fundamental understanding of the technology industry. Technology is always about progression, as we spoke earlier. So as new updates come in, as new software technologies get updated, as new innovations are being done, it, we are bound to have some vulnerabilities. Now, having said that, if the uh, DevOps, development operations of uh, manufacturers are secure. If they follow a secured development life cycle, about 95 to 98% of the issues could easily be eliminated. So if you, it's a concept of GIGO, right? You put garbage and you get garbage out. So it's the same model. So if you really need to figure out at the very entry point, are you taking the right steps? Are the manufacturers leveraging a secured model to develop it? Now, this is where I think certain industrial engineering concepts, if you look at the next generation of uh, Internet of Technologies, IoT, and industrial engineering concepts that is kicking in, you are already seeing a lot of cybersecurity principles being built in. But if you have a, a more standardized consortium, uh, if FTC, for example, is going to start looking at a, a basic security level for devices coming out of manufacturers, then you're really going to be looking at a more standardized approach. Right, right. No good information there, Vijay. Now, there are reports that mobile phones are sometimes set in a debug mode during manufacturing. But these mode must be disabled before the phone is sold by any manufacturer. What is a debug mode and why is it important to disable that? Right. So a debug or a developer mode, uh, the slight bit of differences, but without going too much into the technical details, uh, a debug mode technically starts observing 
let's just say, uh, as a developer, I'm interested to know how my device is performing, the code that I wrote, what is the user experience about it? And the debug basically sets certain thresholds and collects information from the device. And, and the best example I can give you is if you, if you were to sign up with Microsoft, Google, or any one of the services, right at the bottom, it's going to tell you diagnostic information will be connect, collected and sent back to the organization. Do you want to accept it or not? When you say accept that, you're essentially sending the technology and usage information back to the organization. So you could compare debug mode loosely to that, but debug mode has a lot more potential. It really understands what's happening within the device. You open the email, it can actually see the data if you were to open an email, and, and it can probably collect the data as you go through it. And not many devices that are mass market focused come with the debug option enabled right now. But yes, as you said, there are some devices that do come enabled, and these are targeted more towards advanced users. Yes, uh, you're right. Now, when any smartphone, irrespective of manufacturer, is sold, <coughs> sorry about that, its uh, default settings needs to be correct and not leave any room for security gaps. Buyers or users do not always change the default configuration. That right. That is more the reason why a good initial vulnerability-free setup is essential for users. Now, do all manufacturers ensure that their default configurations are not vulnerable to attacks or criminal activities? Because most of the users, they do not know much about these things. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the fundamental question that we think it's a very logical question. And just as you're asking the question, I've asked the question myself, why do certain manufacturers and certain software developers even come up with solutions that are not vetted properly? And, and this kind of goes back to a couple of things. Let's break this down by common user behavior. The average user today is a lot more tech savvy than probably the average user that we have seen five years ago. So the user still demands that type of flexibility, whether they want it or not. That's the manufacturer's viewpoint or the software developer's viewpoint. Those are called the features. Let's loosely call them new features. But understanding what features do, again, this goes back to a feature could be used for the positive reason or for the negative reason, right? So it's an interpretation of the use cases. For every one, good use case, I could think of three negative use cases to go hack the device. So this is where the philosophy of security and how do you arrive at the balanced risk position comes to you know the bigger discussion table. Now, I agree that manufacturers should be able to come up with a, uh, what I would call as a safe zone setting, a bare minimal security that needs to be met. And, and you notice that those type of settings are available. And the other thing I would caution is when you see a big a list of items where you check check your name over and over again, understand what you're checking yes for before you actually check it. In most cases, they are pretty much you know leveraging every personal information, every bit of personal information about you that's been collected in the background. Yes. So, so read about it before you agree to something. 
Right, right. I know you're right. Uh, read about it and understand that what it right. means because you know most people they just glance through it and they have no idea what they are uh, you know reading and signing. So you're right about that. Exactly. Now, now it, more, all, we talked earlier about the iTunes store and other stores which host a lot of applications which users you know are uh, by you know either they download for free or they download by paying a price for that now who is responsible for security audit of mobile phone applications as well as stores how if and second point is how effective is the process for ensuring security right so all app stores markets that you have in your devices. Uh, Apple, for instance, has this uh, very elaborate vetting process before an application is released in its app store. Uh, Android likewise has similar you know, process cycles before an application is released. Uh, while security teams exist with these marketplaces and app stores, the level of scrutiny that goes in the level of sophistication that's available to check these applications at a very detailed level. I'll give you an example. The application may be clean when it goes to the store, but if the application is calling an external resource, once it's installed and downloads additional payload, that's not something the application security professional you know, can easily detect. Now, they could obviously review and say, why is this particular application downloading additional information? And there could be some policies about it. But this is where it gets into the nitty gritties of the world. Uh, it becomes very difficult to scrutinize every piece of application, or at least that's, that's the common consensus. Now, my personal opinion is, if you have a platform of services or a platform of applications that you're offering to your customer because you, you know, they purchased the device, there needs to be a bare minimum security standard that needs to be set. Now, let me let me kind of um, awaken the the dead hearts here. BlackBerry, BlackBerry used to be a very favorite device for a lot of us. The beginning of the smartphone, the enterprise device, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you look at their latest Priv device, BlackBerry Priv, which is an Android device, they have done something very interesting. They have focused on security and they actually have monthly updates that come out. And they have also started release, they're also releasing application security and vulnerability updates on a regular basis. In other words, they are contextualizing the device to see if the apps are safe or not. I think that's a first good step. Now, Samsung has something similar. Uh, I, I know there's quite a few manufacturers out there who have embarked on this, but uh, a very security-focused device that's available in the market right now, there are a couple of them. I think BlackBerry is a pretty reasonable device where it's coming in the spectrum. I see. No, that is a good information about BlackBerry. I wish. So there, there is no such uh, initiative by Apple for the iPhone? Well, the app, see, this is a, this is a more philosophic debate on how every manufacturer's process for security works. Now, Apple does have its own ecosystem of how they do it, how they validate the security of their applications. But in the recent past, we have seen some of their applications are also vulnerable. Uh, but predominantly, the, the, the sense at least people get is that um, Apple has a different scrutiny than anyone else. 
Right, right, right. Uh, let's let's hope so. Uh, it's a personal opinion, right? It's, it it could be yeah. the the thing with the security researcher is you can always narrow down a problem because you're looking at it from that particular pair of glasses. Yes, you know you're right. Now, when and let's say you know you are an application store, and when any application store finds out that one or some of their application uh, that they sell or distribute are in fact not secure. What is the process for revoking that applica those applications? Uh, a great question. So most, <clears throat> most applications that are detected immediately, we have seen multiple cases with Android Marketplace and Apple Apps, uh, App Store. The moment a, a particular app, app is recognized as a malware infected or vulnerable, they are quick enough to remove the application from the store. Now, the process of doing this, again, as I pointed out, if you go to Marketplace, there's a, there's a place to contact or report the application. And most application download screens, there's also a section where you can report about the application, report a spam, or report about the application. I'm not referring to the comment section, but this is the report about application that goes to the actual vendor. In other words, Apple or Android or Google in this case. So that's the easiest way for a common end user to report a problem. But uh, I've seen very favorable responses from uh, Google or Apple. The moment they detect it, they go ahead and delete it. Mm, I see, I see. Now, malware continues to increase in sophistication and has more avenues for execution. Example, mobile devices, traditional computing, and so on. While work at home flexibility increases, critical security issues. How do we manage the risk of malware with the on-site, off-site security tools, technologies, and processes? Because they both are different. Well, it's, it, it, it's fundamental, right? So if you were to pick up an endpoint security solution, um, you need what's called as a follow me security model. So wherever the device goes, the security solution that you have picked up needs to track you and should be able to protect you. Uh, the legacy solutions didn't consider these aspects very well, but as most of them are caught up, every major vendor out there is you know, capable of doing a follow me, always on security model. Uh, you could look at solutions like Zscaler, which is a proxy, which works both in your enterprise and outside your enterprise from your home network. And it, it, it pretty much protects quite a, a major subset of malware that is propagated through the web. You could you could look at products like Sophos, or you could look at products like Symantec and a few others that work no matter which network you're connected. So once again, um, the footprint of the device doesn't really matter. When you start the discussion, it's about the data in a boundary and data without a boundary. The, the way in which you design solutions needs to be well thought out. The architecture needs to be seamless that can operate in a wire, in a wireless, in a confined, in a non-confined uh, model. So that's where the, the CISO's jobs become pretty interesting, pretty mm -hmm. critical as we start thinking in those aspects. Yes, yes, no, very true. Now the battle between company-owned devices and user-owned devices will probably likely continue for years to come. How do employers across industries protect their sensitive data on users' personal devices? Because a lot of corporations are now going to, uh, towards you know, user-owned devices. They are not issuing their uh, company cell phones to uh, employees. How do Correct. 
ensure security then? So there's a mixed amount of perceptions and reality of that particular topic right now. Um, you know, if I remember right, in California, there's a ruling about if you use your personal devices, how you get remunerated, how you get compensated for doing work on your personal device. It, it, it's, uh, it's both an ethical debate as well as a reality. Now, I've seen a few corporations, even though they were onboarding on BYOD pretty aggressively, I've seen some of them dialed back based on the type of business they, that they do, based on the nature of data that is transacted in their wires, I've seen that they they have this model is not really that hot anymore. Um, it, it works, but it works. It works really well. The modern technology worker who needs the flexibility, the remote working model, or if the the millennial working style work from anywhere on availability model, it works really really well for those type of scenarios. And from a traditional enterprise model, let's say, for example, you work for the federal government, then you obviously have some data sensitivity issues, and you really need to contain your device to a particular network. So personal device is always, uh, I would say, is a sketchy area. Even within an organization that has sensitive data, there could be pools of associates. Now, one set of associates could be the high knowledge workers, for example, dealing with sensitive data, they probably are not good candidates for BYOD. But if you look at, uh, let's say, marketing professionals or someone else within the group that are not dealing with sensitive data, uh, it's quite likely that they can use BYOD approach. So every organization is unique. They're going to come to a balance point between BYOD and company-issued devices with their own equation, with their own business context, rather than company A is doing it, so let's try it out. There's got to be a business model, a driver, and some value that needs to come together for BYOD to really succeed. Right, I know that's a very good point. Now, this is the last question, Vijay. If you had a power to change, what would you like to change about how the mobile uh, security is being addressed today? Wow, that's... It makes me feel like a god, but I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, I think the, the the fundamental perspective as a, a hardcore security mindset person here would be uh, if there is an ability to bring security first or risk first mentality into device manufacturers. If you look, if you take a look at the full mobile device life cycle. Uh, I'll kind of connect the dots back to my supply chain security comment that I made earlier. If we can have an audit and a validation process right from the design of the device, uh, right from your biometric hardware layout, for example, how the screen is layered, all the way from there to the software and how the software is updated on a regular basis, if there is uh, an auditability factor, if there is some form of set of constraints and regulations that we can look at, and I don't want to make this, uh, I don't want to come off as being, um, create another layer to slow down things, but at the same time, if there is a relevant uh, agile model that we can work with all these manufacturers and ascertain that this can be controlled in a satisfied model, I think it would be a phenomenal success 
later on when these devices come to the market and how do you manage the security of those devices once it's in the hands of the user? So there needs to be some form of that uh, control point for all the right reasons, not for slowing down the process. That would be my wish list. <laughs> no, no, you're absolutely right. I think these are good suggestions and I hope that the industry work towards that. Uh, and I hope the, that we are able to bring uh, effectiveness in the security that we offer to the mobile users. Having said that, I think, uh, uh, thank you so much, Vijay, for your valuable time. And thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts and input uh, uh, for the benefit of all our global uh, users and listeners, uh, viewers and listeners. Uh, I, I'm sure that they will benefit tremendously from what you had to say, and I'm sure that they have picked up some points by which they will be able to uh, keep themselves secure, keep their smartphones secure, so that you know they can you know uh, keep security for themselves and their families and their initiatives and their business uh, uh, data and confidential data. So thank you so much, Vijay, for uh, sharing all that information, and I hope that in future. Uh, you, as we you know, go forward with our uh, research and analysis. I hope that you know you would uh, uh, come again on Risk Roundup and share some of your valuable insight. And uh, we would uh, really like to welcome that. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jashri. It was my pleasure talking with you today, and I think uh, you're doing a phenomenal job spreading the that the, you know the basics are always the most important, and getting this messaging out in an easy consumable manner is very critical and uh, kudos to that i think it's job well done bravo and uh, uh, now to kind of go forward to the other topic Jeshri, i'm hoping you'd be able to take a look at it and see if everything is coming out right and do some edits uh, feel free to share version with me and i can also send you my linkedin you know the url the twitter uh, user ID and all that handle that way people can follow me if they have any questions based on the session. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll be happy to do that. So with that, uh, we are going to conclude our session here, but let me make a few points uh, before we end the session that mobile equipments and technologies are becoming preferred targets of attacks as mobile commerce picks up. These attacks exploit weaknesses related to smartphones that can come from means of communications like uh, short message service that is SMS or multimedia messaging services or Wi-Fi networks, Bluetooth and so on. So there are also attacks that exploit software vulnerabilities from both the web browser and operating system as well as forms of malicious software that rely on the weak knowledge of average users. There is a critical need for identifying, evaluating, understanding and managing this critical security risk. And this is the very reason that risk groups Cybersecurity Risk Research Center and Strategic Security Risk Research Center are created to identify, evaluate, and manage the security risk facing nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, that is NGIOA, in cyberspace, geospace, and space, that is CGS. So let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the Risk Roundtable, to watch the Risk Roundup videos or to hear the Risk Roundup podcast, Please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to share and subscribe. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.